0: I was, I was ugly crying in the front, um, and I feel a little fearful of even preaching now. It's like, maybe we should just skip all this sort of heady stuff and just go back to the hard stuff that was going on that seems so much more helpful. Um, and so if you are in just a sweet spot with God after that experience, and you're wanting to just stay with Him, then you're just so welcome to zone out for the rest of this. Uh, I know you would feel free to do that anyway, um, but... But welcome to Olive Tree. If you're visiting, uh, we're just so glad that you've chosen to spend this incredible holy weekend uh, with us. If you're part of the furniture, uh, this church inspires me all the time, and it's wonderful to see you on the high point. I mean, if if I came to power... Presents would be exchanged on Easter, right? This is the best weekend. This is far more cool than the Christmas weekend. But because Christmas has this horrible PR advantage uh, of presents being given, where all you get on Easter um, is Woolworth's bad attempt to try and beat Beacon at what were already fairly average Easter eggs in the first place, it feels like... Easter deserves a little bit more, but this is just the most incredible weekend. The stuff that went down here has shaped human history, uh, and it's such a privilege to be able to celebrate it with all the amazing people who are part of this church. If you're new to this story, or if the story sometimes requires a little bit of contextualization for you, we've been spending this um, whole Easter period trying to bring the story up to date, and imagine if you were living in the moment that these big news headlines were being written. Uh, and so down the road from you somewhere, someone will have a little copy of our uh, fake newspaper that we wrote. If you've not seen one, grab hold of it. Uh, and we've been um, trying our best to not be too dodgy with some of the innuendos we've been making in the headlines um, that we've been writing for for the Observer, which we kind of invented. But imagine, imagine it happened right now. Imagine Trevor Noah was killed and buried publicly, or Kurt Darren, whichever you can identify with more, right? Um, a really sort of public, well-known figure. Imagine they were executed publicly, and then everyone saw where the funeral happened, big state funeral, the the spot where this person, um, Kurt uh, Noah, was buried, uh, was accessible. Everyone knew where it was. All right? And then imagine a few days later, rumors started to swirl that he'd risen from the dead. And not some like grainy, you know, execution video from the back of Afghanistan somewhere where you're like, well, maybe he didn't really die. Like, this was on CNN. We all saw what happened. We all saw the burial. And then these rumors start to emerge that he's alive again. And, and loads of eyewitnesses from a town the size of Benoni. That's Jerusalem. This really does feel like we're going the Kurt Darren route. Um, but imagine 500 eyewitnesses all started saying, no, you can quote me, I saw him alive. And a few weeks after that, a whole, not just series of eyewitnesses, but a whole movement begins to take place. Where people are shouting, this person was raised from the dead and in fact is God. And a whole religion gets formed on this. What would you say? What would your reaction be? I mean, aside from rolling your eyes because it's from Benoni, what what would you start to think? You'd probably laugh. You'd probably go to conspiracy theory. But at some point, as it gathered momentum, as people who were previously fearful or disappointed by this death become more and more bold, you would start to say, okay, we'll prove it. Let's see. And one of the first, most obvious ways to prove that this is all a hoax would be to find the body. But inconveniently, no one can find the body. In fact, the tomb, which we all know where it is, you can go there and it's empty. Then we say, well, conspiracy theory, right? So it must, must have been stolen. Someone's nicked the body. That would be the logical conclusion. Well, fair enough. Um, but the authorities who put Kurt Noah to death uh, have been guarding that tomb all along. Why would they steal the body of someone who they were busy trying to kill only to give his followers uh, more credence? Ah, well, maybe there's been some inside job, right? Maybe the guys who were guarding the tomb were part of a union that was in conflict with whatever, you know? Um, maybe there's some inside job that's gone on here. And yet, from that moment on, For the rest of the lives of the eyewitnesses and everyone who starts to believe their story, people are prepared to be killed for this lie. People are prepared to suffer for the sake of this conspiracy theory. People who at one minute were deeply distraught and depressed to see this public figure put to death are now starting to do crazy, amazing things. And the story keeps spreading. And inconveniently, everyone has the exact same story. If this was just some harebrained hallucination or some conspiracy theory, you'd start to see some inconsistencies. But no matter how many people you ask and no matter how much time goes by, the same story keeps getting described. And anyone who claims to have encountered this risen person has such similar experiences. The the character traits of the supposedly executed, now risen person seem to be identical. It would force you to ask some difficult questions, wouldn't it? And that's what we're going to try and do today. We're going to try and ask those same difficult questions of not some fictional Kurt Darren or Trevor Noah story, but a real one that historically took place. And we're going to ask the question, what if it were true? And I recognize that many of you here this morning already believe that it's true and are celebrating the truth of it. And as I said, I don't really want to get in the way of what you're doing with God right now. But let's just take a step back for those who are of a slightly critical way of thinking. What if it were true? And beneath that question, we're going to ask Two main questions this morning, and we're going to try and spend as much time on each. The first one, what are the chances? Like, genuinely speaking, what are the chances of this actually being true? Question number two, well, what are the consequences? If it really is true, what does this actually mean? And as you read the story, as I was alluding to in the Trevor Noah version of this, the whole thing seems to me, if you were an investigative journalist, if you are a private investigator, the whole thing seems to hinge on how much you trust the tomb guards, Okay? So you've got a guy who's definitely been executed, and history doesn't question this. And you've got a tomb that's definitely empty. History doesn't question this. Even the Jewish version of the story ends with an empty tomb. Between those two scenarios... A guy absolutely killed in a tomb that's absolutely empty. Either he rose from the dead like he claimed, or the guards did some mistake and the body was stolen. That seems to be the only rational explanation. Then you still have to deal with the fact that all these people went on and died for the sake of the story and suffered for the sake of the conspiracy, which psychologically speaking is quite hard to believe. But say you believe that, then you've got to be able to prove that the body was stolen. And so I want to zoom in on the Roman legionaries who guarded the tomb. We're just going to talk about them for a little while, if we're asking what are the chances of it actually being true. I don't know how much you know about Roman legionaries. Very badass. Um, They were professional soldiers in a time of great conflict, where their army was the successful army of the world. And they were used to going into foreign areas uh, and conquering and defeating and then holding... Subject, nations that had no interest in them being there. So these were some really ruthless guys and saw some gruesome stuff, if you can imagine being a frontline soldier in that era. Hugely disciplined, hugely pragmatic, hugely condescending to these other cultures because the Roman way worked. And these guys were the tip of the spear, literally and figuratively, of that potent empire. Their background was one of the sort of weird polytheistic many gods, all of whom seemed quite immoral and pernicious and not particularly reliable. So even the Roman religion put all the spiritual stuff as like a bit of a sideshow. And then they would conquer other nations and see these other funny pagan primitive religions going on. And Romans tended to dabble a little bit and find them interesting, a little bit like young backpackers who go to India today, but aren't really prepared to submit at all to this stuff. Because they're pragmatic and they're ruthless and they're professional killers. And so it's a bit of local color. But no Roman would even remotely think of abandoning their identity as Roman for the sake of submitting to some indigenous religion in one of the little nations that they had subjected to their rule. I mean, it would just be insane to do that. And if you are a god in charge of putting down this revolution that has some sort of spiritual vibe to it, to not convert, to even admit that there is something true about that, not only put your profession at risk, but your life in danger. Roman soldiers, when they were given commands, if they were to retreat or disobey or run away, were punishable by death. Let me tell you the story as the Bible tells it and how these Roman soldiers fit in. Matthew 27. There's this one line that that troubles me, that deserves a little bit of investigation. Uh, Verse 4. When the centurion, centurion and those who... With him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, "Surely he was the Son of God." So, based on everything that I've said about what Roman legionaries were like, for them to make that claim, for them to be able to say, "No, this is this is different from this other funny, primitive, spiritualistic stuff we've seen. This was the Son of God." It's just a crazy claim. So, what's gone on around that? This is after Jesus has been killed. The next day, the one after Preparation Day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. That's the Roman prefect of the area, the governor of the area, who had given the command to crucify Jesus. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. I find any time you read the words of Pilate, it's best to put your head on, or hand on your head and sigh while you're speaking, because he just sounds like a more and more beleaguered leader. I right? just, oh my goodness, these oaks again. So, you know, okay, take a guard. Uh, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. The stone um, is large, right? A big stone in a little channel that rolls downhill and then drops into place in front of the hole that that is the entrance to the tomb. Not impossible to move. Tombs in that era were reused. All your ancestors and all your relatives got to share the same tomb party. Uh, And so at some point you would have to roll the stone away. In fact, it was the privilege of the oldest son after a year to go and gather his father's ashes uh, from where, well, ashes, his remains from where they were laid out on the slab and then put them into a jar uh, underneath. So the tomb could be opened, but a massive mission to roll the stone from its chink, Click up onto the upward sloping channel and roll it out of the way. Many men required to do this. So it's well secure. And then there's a guard in front. And they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Okay, so that's the scenario. Let's carry on in the next chapter. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards, those fearsome, pragmatic, professional soldiers, were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Those guys who, if they failed in their duty, who disobeyed their orders, could be flogged Excommunicated from Rome, you know, had their citizenship removed, maybe even killed. They just rolled over, and these two little ladies who turned up found an empty tomb. While the women were on their way, so now they had left to go and tell people this incredible story. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders, uh, they devised a plan. And they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Right? So that goes to this idea that for them to have disobeyed, they could really be in trouble. The chief priest was saying, we'll pay you off, say you fell asleep, we'll vouch for you. The, the disciples stole the body. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is just the most amazing story. And from that moment on, a bunch of terrified disciples. And please hear how inconvenient to the narrative this is if you're inventing this. A couple of really inconvenient things that you wouldn't put into the story if this was some conspiracy theory. You wouldn't send two women to be the witnesses. In that era, women didn't even get to testify in court. Their word was not considered Trustworthy. Even if they were to tell you to speak slower during your announcements, you could just pump straight past that moment. All right. How far we've come, thank goodness. Um, but if you were in co- concocting some fake story, you wouldn't send people whose testimony doesn't even stand up in court to be your two initial witnesses. This is one of the most countercultural and massive things of our Christianity, that at these key moments where now you don't even notice the fact that women are involved, Jesus deliberately, God deliberately uses women. Very cool. And um, you wouldn't put that in your story if you were faking it. You also wouldn't put in your story the fact that all of you who are now going to be the main representatives and torchbearers of this new story were doubting that he would even come back, were very unimpressive, were hiding in some hole somewhere. After three years of him saying, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, none of you believed it. We we were all idiots, and we're going to write it in the story that we're going to tell people. And we didn't believe it. And even when we heard the news that he'd supposedly rose from the dead, we, we weren't convinced. You wouldn't put that in the story. But they did. They put all these inconvenient components into the story. And then you have this phenomenon, the growth of the early church, as hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses over the next few months so that they've seen this risen Lord. And you've got this empty tomb standing there, this great big awkward thing that this, the authorities can't do away with. And then suppose maybe Jesus like didn't quite die. Maybe he was just badly wounded by this perfected execution system Uh, and in the ground he sort of spontaneously healed himself uh, and then was able to roll the stone out of the way or maybe the gods also happened to fall asleep as well as him almost dying and so the people were able to roll the stone away on the off chance that maybe he recovered from his wounds and he did recover from his wounds and he turned up like maybe you have enough faith to believe that story then he goes and rises off the face of the earth And goes to be with God. He wasn't around a few months after that. So he inconveniently turns up when he was supposed to be dead. And then inconveniently leaves when a live person should still be very easy to find. And goes up into heaven. The story is just too crazy to make up and then have survive when you're preaching it in the exact same era as all the people around you're quoting in the story, name after name quoted in the Gospels. People with standing, who if they were part of some conspiracy, would have very quickly said, no, no, I wasn't there. No, it didn't work like that. No shame, they went to the wrong tomb. It's actually this one over here. Let's just put this to bed. But instead, within the same few months, within the same generation, as all the eyewitnesses were still alive, the story just grew and grew and grew, and the church blossomed and blossomed. And it's a difficult thing to explain. So let's Just for the sake of argument, go, well, this does sound plausible. Historically speaking, this does seem realistic. That something, as hard as it might be to even get the words out of your mouth, someone did rise from the dead. This is exactly what's happened. What are the consequences? That was question number two, and this is the much more interesting place to stay. We can get beyond the philosophy and the history and get into what does this actually mean? If the story is really true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, your first question might be, if you're new to this stuff, Well, I'm not sure that I really needed saving. So thank you, Jesus. That's very kind of you to die. And congratulations, Jesus. It was very impressive that you rose from the dead. But I didn't ask you to do that. So why should I be so thankful? Why why do I really need saving? And in answer to that question, I want to play a little trick on you. okay? Because the fact that we don't think about things very often or notice things, the fact that we're not aware of things doesn't mean that they're not true or not important. You know, while we've been speaking this morning, I know that most of the men in this room have forgotten that they have children. They're not even in your mind right now. That doesn't mean that they don't really exist. It doesn't mean that they're not important to you. It just means that right now, you focused your incredible search filtering engine in your brain onto the thing in front of you. And all sorts of other important stuff you were able to zone out, right? And that's only some of the men like me that really bad fathers. I'm sure many of you didn't um, fall into that category. But while we've been speaking, there's probably something you've not noticed at all, any of you, which if it were to disappear would cause you great embarrassment and injury, right? The chair you're sitting on, you haven't felt it. If you were to try to sense all the sensory inputs going on right now, you didn't notice the chair. Once you sat on it, once you were happy that no school friend had pulled it out while you were trying to sit down, you just zone it out. For you to be aware of those stimuli all the time. It would just be overload. And so you can use the search filtering ca- capacity of your brain to just zone that out. So now you're wondering what the next thing's going to be, right? So try and sense stuff. What's the next thing? The next thing is even more crucial than the chair, sparing you even more embarrassment, even more important to your comfort. Can you feel it right now? It's so close to you. Well, the truth is the clothing you're wearing, you haven't felt on your skin since you put it on. Now you can. Now you can feel the elastic on your hip and the label in the back of your neck, Right? And while we're thinking about that, just reminder, guys, you still have kids. I know you haven't thought about them since I mentioned them a few moments ago. You'd notice if it were gone, right, the clothing. Um, but as long as it's on, it's, you just zone it out. Okay, so that's all a bit of a trick. It's not important, Paul. I can still keep my senses on the stuff that's really important. The fact that I'm not thinking about the chair or my clothes, it's not a big deal. Okay, have you noticed the breaths you've been taking since we've been here? As far as importance goes, the air that's coming in and out of your lungs, pretty key. And now that you're thinking about your breath, it's hard to imagine that you ever don't think about it, and yet you just zone it out when you're not. So here's the thing the fact that you can zone something out altogether, the fact that you cannot even notice something, doesn't mean it's not important. Doesn't mean it's not true. You have this incredible search filter in your mind. So if you were to say, well, if there was a really a loving God who was desperately trying to get my attention, if I was really desperately in need of, need of saving, I'd know. Well, apparently not. Apparently, you're really good at filtering stuff out. The fact that you're breathing, the fact that there is gravity right now stopping you spinning off the face of this earth, the fact that you're wearing clothes, the fact that you're sitting on a chair, all these hugely important things, which once they're... Brought to your attention are like, oh my goodness, how could I not see this? You're so good at filtering them out. Could it be that there's some other really important stuff that you're filtering out? I guess it's possible that we can just direct our attention away from the things that are most important. So do I need saving by God? This is the big question. The fact that you're here today probably means that you're open to the idea that this world can't just be explained by scientific means. The fact that you're here today, that you're interested in this Easter story, that you possibly believe part of it, means that you don't fall for the idea that the world can totally be explained by science. If our technology was good enough, if we could investigate it properly, that we'd be able to explain everything. You look at things like humor and the fact that we can all notice when something's funny. You look at things like great art and the fact that we can all see when something's really beautiful and really not. You look at things like self-sacrifice, the fact that we believe we should in some way, forgive people, that we think forgiveness is good, not dumb, that we think self-sacrifice is noble, not foolish. You look at things like morality, that you have some sense that you should keep your promises, that it's bad when people don't keep their promises. You look at all these things and you go, there's stuff that science just can't explain. And you'd be right. You're smart to think that because if everything can be explained by science, if we had the technology, that means you can be explained by science. And the things that science can explain can always be predicted. Once you can figure out the rule, once you can figure out the law, once you can figure out the interplay of variables, you can then predict how things will work, which means that if this is a purely natural world that can be explained perfectly by science, then the fact that you're here today, well, you were actually not free. You were always going to come here today. The fact that you married the person you did, the fact that your spouse chose you, not someone else, in fact, they had no freedom in that. They always had to choose you, not someone else. That if we could understand the scientific variables behind it, they were always automatically going to make that choice. I know now they are no longer free. I know now you have taken the precaution of surgically removing that part of their free will. Um, But you like to believe that before they chose you and married you, they had a choice in the matter. That they could have chosen someone else, but they chose you. Well, if this world is purely a natural world that can be explained by science, they weren't really free to do that. You weren't free to arrive here today. The murderer wasn't actually free not to pull the trigger. The voters aren't actually going to be free to vote however they want. If we could understand the science well enough, we could already know what's going to happen on the 8th of May. See, you're smart not to think that the world can be perfectly explained by science because you believe deep down that the things you do, you're making a choice. Science couldn't just figure it out and predict it. You're absolutely making a choice when you do that. And if you're making a choice, that means you're responsible for the choices you make. And so let's just admit this morning, this crazy story that seems really true, that someone rose from the dead, the strange phenomena, which is that you actually believe you're free, all of these things prove there is something more to this world than science can explain. And that sets us up to admit what we've always wanted to admit. It's something that you grew up believing which is that you were made, you were designed, you were created, you were chosen. You were put on this planet for a reason. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Since you were a kid, you knew this to be true. And something bashed it out of you as you grew up, but we absolutely know we were designed by someone. We're not just the sum total of a bunch of scientific processes that can be understood. I'm unique. And I'm free to be me and there's someone who set me up to be me, someone who's interested in what I do and the choices I make matter for better or worse. So to remind you, we're at this question, what are the consequences if it's really true? If Jesus really died, really rose from the the grave again and if you're really created by someone, here's the big idea. If you're created, if you have a design, that means you have a purpose. And purpose is cool, right? Purpose is exciting. Well, purpose implies accountability. If the chair that you're sitting on, which you've once again forgotten about, started to rebel against its purpose and not do what it was designed to do and caved in underneath you, after you'd recovered and we'd all sniggered quietly and then commiserated with you, we would say, naughty chair, bad chair, that wasn't what you were supposed to do, and we're going to either throw you away or fix you, All right? If you were designed... If you're not the sum total of some scientific process, if you're actually free, which implies that you were actually designed, that means you have purpose. And if you have purpose, you have accountability. And if you break that purpose, you need to either be fixed or thrown away. Well, this doesn't sound so great anymore. Maybe science sounds a bit better. Science means that we're all not really responsible for what we do. No, this is true. This is how it works. You were designed. You were created. Which means that there is accountability. You don't know what you were designed for. I want to understand a little bit of your purpose. I'll give you a few quick ideas. See, Romans 3 verse 23 says, Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. If you were created, you were created for something that something is glorious. What is God's standard? What were you created for? What were you designed to use your freedom towards? One idea might be love, right? God's standard is love. God seems to talk about us being people of love a whole lot. Have you loved perfectly every created person and creature that you've bumped into and encountered in your life? I worry if that's the standard that I haven't lived up perfectly to love. Another way to talk about God's standard is perfect moral purity. Have you led yourself as well as you could? I worry about that. I'm not sure that I live up to that standard. Another way to describe God's standard is that he designed us for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10 that I quoted, quoted earlier, he designed us for good works. Have I lived up to all the good stuff God put me on this planet to do? When you think like that, it's quite scary. When you think like, well, I'm better than so-and-so, maybe Kurt Darren, if you're a musician, certainly the people up here today, um, well, then the standard seems pretty easy to pass. But if there's some glorious standard that I was created for, sure, I don't know that I've used my freedom to get there. Another way to talk about the standard you were created for was for relationship with your creator. This isn't going to come up behind me. I just want you to listen to the heart of your father as he describes what he made you for in Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar. And my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. You were created by someone with a huge, overflowing heart of love who desperately wanted to be connected with you. Yes, you were made to love perfectly. Yes, you were made to be perfectly moral. Yes, you were made to do wonderfully good things. Above all, you were made to be intimately connected with your Father who created you. And I have chosen so many times to move away from Him. I've chosen so often to filter Him out of the search engine and not notice what He's up to and focus my attention elsewhere and go, well, if I needed saving, I'm sure I'd notice. If there was a God who was trying to get my attention, I'm sure I'd notice. Well, apparently not. Apparently, we're brilliant at zoning Him out. Here's the amazing offer today. Here's the amazing thing that's possible. Here's what the resurrection of Jesus proves. If you are the faulty chair that hasn't lived up to your purpose, if you're starting to suspect that if you were designed to be beautiful and perfect and do wonderful stuff and you've fallen short of that, the amazing news of Jesus coming to die for you is that being thrown away is not an option. God decided, despite how much you are corrupted from your original design, despite how far you may have fallen from the glory that you were intended for, he's not tossing you out. He's going to fix you. He's going to fix you. There's one guy who was around at this time, who heard the story and thought, oh, it's nonsense. In fact, he was so convinced it was nonsense that he was trying to put to death the people who were preaching the story, saying, this is just dangerous lies, this is stupid, don't believe this rubbish. His name is Paul, but at the time he was called Saul when he was just trying to threaten and kill this early movement. And here's something incredible that he says in Romans 1, verse 16. He's now come to believe this nonsense. He's become a follower of Jesus after he died. He believes Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, he believes he encountered Jesus. And he's discovered that God's plan is not to throw him away or punish him for falling short of his design, but to repair him and fix him. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. For the gospel reveals the righteousness of God that comes by faith from start to finish. If you're here this morning and you love God like crazy, if you're here this morning and you used to be quite connected to God, but you think you've moved a little away from your purpose, you've zoned that stuff out and you've focused in on some other things that seem important to you, but you're starting to wonder, is this really what it's all about? Perhaps he had a day and you're a long way from God. You're not sure that this stuff has ever really resonated before. There is this power available to grab hold of you, forgive you for all the ways you haven't lived up to your expectations, to, you haven't met the standard, and then to fix you and change you from the inside out. And that can happen today. I'd like you to start to prepare to pray now. And I want to read you one last scripture, which was what was on my mind and making me cry as we were worshipping earlier. It comes out of Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. It says that God has made everything beautiful in its time, and he set eternity in the human heart. This is why we can't buy into the scientific explanation, because you have eternity set inside your heart. You believe in the eternal. You can't help it. Freud said it was psychosis that you thought you'd never die. No, it's the imprints, it's the fingerprints of the God who used, whose image you were designed in that you believe in eternity. You know it to be true. But the first line is the one that's most amazing. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Perhaps today it is finally time for you to be made beautiful. But there's been a journey and a process and people have hurt you and you've hurt others and you've reacted to bad circumstances in ugly ways and you have ended up in fear or you've ended up in anger or you've ended up in pragmatism or you've ended up in control. You've ended up in all sorts of things that fall short of the beautiful standard of God. And he's saying, don't worry, I make everything beautiful in its time. And your time might very well be now. I'm going to take you and recraft you and turn you into the incredible thing that I designed in the first place. Full relationship with me. I'm going to make you into that. And you're not going to have to strive and you're not going to have to feel ashamed and you're not going to have to try. Just let me work inside you. Because I already set eternity on your heart. There's a part of you that's longing for this and I just want to make it beautiful now. It's time. Close your eyes, please. What if this is all true, God? What if you really did this? What if you really came for us? You didn't abandon us to our foolishness and our selfishness. What if you really came and lived among us and let us kill you? But you defeated death and rose. What if you really did that? What was it for? What are the consequences of that? God, if we were to believe your scriptures, it's so that you could come and make us beautiful, so you could come and repair us. You could take the shame and the fear and the selfishness and the guilt and all the ways that we have filtered out the stuff that we were designed for and you've come to fix us. Would you bring us into a relationship with you right now? Everyone in this room, Would you bring the consequences of this mega story to bear on us right now? We were designed. We were created. We're truly free as a result. We have a father who loves us, who's stretching out his hand towards us. We have no right to be in his presence, but our sin has been forgiven because someone else died the death we were supposed to die. And rose from the grave to defeat death and make it possible for us to be made alive even when we are spiritually dead. And would you bring us alive right now? Breathe your life into our inmost parts. Make us alive to you, to relationship with you, to, to being repaired by you. And even those who've known you for ages, Lord, would you continue that reparation, that repairing process? Just so, I'm just feeling so aware that there are folks here who allow the bad treatment of others to then cause them to behave less than beautifully. You've been pushed around. You've been frightened by people. You've been manipulated. You've been shut down. You've been hurt by others. And so you've had to become, or you believe you've had to become, a little nasty, a little brittle, a little spiky on the outside. You've developed strategies and tactics to survive in a scary world that, if you're honest, aren't beautiful. They're not what you were designed to be. Or perhaps in the face of a broken world, you've become cynical and you make sarcastic comments and you don't expect very much from people or God. You've turned into someone unrecognizable from the youngster that you remember yourself once being. The beauty that you think you were actually designed to have. Wherever you've been broken or robbed from or warped, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And God, I pray that you work on us now. In the power of the resurrected son, in the name of Jesus Christ, whose life we get to live in.